there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country. Isn't that the way it so often is? When we, we, we make a mistake and then it gets compounded by circumstances as the sky seems to fall in. He began to be in need, the scripture says. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs, the lowest job of, of that day. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. His name was Toby. The man's name was Toby. And he was the youngest son of a lawyer from Cleveland who had struck it rich there. And it had moved his whole family out to the luxury community of Rancho Sake. Rancho Santa Fe, California, near San Diego, where I was a pastor for a number of years. Toby's dad and his mom were active members of our church. In fact, Toby's dad was one of our elders, and they were among the first family to take my wife and I out to dinner when we first moved to that community. It lived in an absolutely magnificent home. It was up on a hill. It had a a terrace down below with a marvelous pool that overlooked a a fragrant uh, orchard. Uh, of citrus trees, and there was a view beyond it that just seemed to go on forever. It was a magnificent uh, setting for a family. Uh, The family had each year uh, endowed their children with capacities beyond the usual measure. In fact, each year the trust fund that Toby's dad had set up for him kicked out a handsome income that freed Toby from a lot of worries, and allowed him to pursue the things that he wanted to really go after in life. And for Toby, that meant dabbling in real estate development. His father wanted his boy to be as success as he had been. 
He wanted him to build up a business. He wanted him to know the joy of finally getting to a place in life where he could really help others in a meaningful way. And this is why what happened at the poolside that morning is so very puzzling. Toby came home while his mom was out playing tennis. He found his father alone on the terrace. Dad, he said, there's this property in Las Vegas. I'm I'm not kidding you. That's where it was. That I've got my eye on and I need some help if I'm going to tie it up. It costs more than I have coming in. Can you give me the money that I need to tie it up? It was not a new conversation. There had been many conversations like this in the past. Toby's father had often explained to his son that he wanted the best for him, but that it was very important that Toby learn to live within the generous means that had already been provided to him. There are more resources coming your way once mom and I are gone, Toby, he said to them. But for now, the best thing we can do is to help you to think through how you build a life of value and integrity with the gifts that you have been given. And Toby's mother, and this is how I know these conversations went on, Toby's mother told me later on that this line of discourse was always upsetting to their son. She said, in effect, to me, Toby never liked limits. Because he knew that we had more, he always felt we should give him more. He burned through almost everything that we gave to him. And when that wasn't enough, he felt like it was our responsibility to do whatever he believed would make him happier. And when his dad said no to him, I was the soft touch, said Nancy. When his dad said no to him, it made Toby angry. That was an understatement. That was a great understatement. My first conversation with Toby was in the San Diego County Jail. He was there because on that sunny San Diego morning, he listened to his father set a limit one more time. And then he went over and he picked up a terracotta planter that was there by the poolside. And he hoisted it above his head and he smashed it down on his father's head, murdering him. When I went to the jail, I asked Toby, do you have any comprehension of what this act has done to your mom? And he turned my question around and said to me, does she have any, any concept what she's done to me by now cutting off my funds? The selfish heart. The selfish heart. There's a clinical word for a man like Toby, of course. Some of you know it. It's the word sociopath. Sociopath. A sociopath is somebody who has no empathy, no capacity to project themselves inside the heart and needs of others. He's obsessively concerned for his needs alone. He has a heart utterly consumed and consuming with selfishness. Thankfully, we don't run into people like Toby all that often. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there does exist in many people, 
many of the people around us, maybe even in ourselves, a milder version of Toby's extreme condition. That it is extremely important to recognize and root out before it carries us away. We see this milder picture of it in the most famous story Jesus ever told. Most of you know the story well. Luke 15, 11 reads, there's this man, he has two sons. And the younger one says to his father, dad, give me my share of the estate. And the father amazingly chooses to do so. He divides the property between his sons. And not long after that, the younger son packs up all of his bags, grabs the credit cards, sets off for a distant country. Some versions of the Bible say the far country. And there he squanders his wealth. Spends it all, wastes it in wild living. As many of you know, the obvious scandal in this story, at least from our perspective, is the reckless selfishness of this younger son's heart. In the culture of the ancient Middle East, what he did was unconscionable. And we need to understand that context or the culture of that time to fully appreciate the significance and horror of what he did. In that culture, to demand one's inheritance and to leave before your father died, to leave home before your father died, was only a very small step from from picking up a terracotta planter and bashing your father over the head with it. It was pretty close to that kind of an act. It was a staggering sign of disrespect and disregard for who this father is and all that he has done for you in the Middle Eastern mindset. It was a bald statement that the only thing that this son really had ever valued about his father was his capacity to fulfill the son's wishes. He did not care about being close to his father. He did not care about learning from his dad. He didn't give a wit about trying to help his dad's estate prosper and grow. He he didn't shed a tear over what going his own way was going to do to the heart of his father who loves him and who longs for his company, especially in his latter years of life. He doesn't care that his father's good name is dragged through the mud by his stunning self-absorption. How others would whisper about that father and say, Can, did, you hear, did you hear what that son did? How little, how little he respected his father. This son doesn't give a cow pie for how his choice of his own private pathway weakens the coherence of the family. Weakens the coherence indeed of the society where this kind of behavior was not tolerated. Sons were routinely stoned for lesser offenses than this kind of utter disregard. No, this son just sets on fire everything about the regulations and the relationships and the resource setup of his world. He sets it on fire and walks away. Now, some of us have actually known people like this. We've actually known people consumed with this kind of selfishness. Maybe not quite as bad as Toby, hopefully, but people with selfish hearts nonetheless. And sometimes I think that if we listen very closely to the people that are nearest to us, 
the ones who know us and observe us most nearly, or if we are very ruthlessly honest at looking at our own hearts, we recognize that there's something of this younger son in us as well. Hasn't grown up to the size of a Toby by any stretch of the imagination, but something of this younger son blazes in our heart too. Our spiritual adversary has lit a fire of selfish rebellion in us. And as we've been talking in recent weeks, we have an adversary. And the desire he has to sow into our hearts, to to light fire into our hearts, these, these fundamental lies. And these lies are like matchsticks that set ablaze our hearts in destructive ways. The matchsticks he's used have been the lie that you're on your own. You better go it on your own. Your father cannot be trusted. His limits will hurt you. You see that in the story here. These are the lies that the son has taken into his own heart. And as the flames in the heart of of the son or in our own hearts get higher and higher, we start to burn our way more and more through moral and legal regulations. And after a while, we don't even notice that we're doing it. We don't care that we're doing it. We start to burn our way through personal relationships and we don't notice that they're, that they're, they're going ashen, these relationships that were once vital and important. We burn our way through our financial or our physical resources, these things entrusted to us for better purposes. And more and more, the crackling question at the center of our heart becomes, what's in it for me? What's in it for me when I come to church? What's in it for me when I go to my workplace? What's in it for me when I enter the, the hallway of my house? What's in it for me? How do I get mine? And why are you stopping me from getting what I should have? We may work hard to, to smother the flames, to hide the smoke. There may be social reasons why it never comes out quite exactly that way, but there at the center of the soul, there in the center of our hearts, this burning goes on. And one of the evidences of this burning, I submit to you, is just how hot we get at the suggestion that we have got a problem. Some preacher gets up here and starts talking to us this way, and it seems so extreme. And we think, how dare you judge me? You don't know me. I am nowhere near as selfish as a lot of people I could name. But seriously. How much do we really care for our Father's will, His heart, His way? How much? Can we name even five significant sacrifices or basic shifts in orientation that we have made to align ourselves further with the Father's heart. Can we name, and some of us have been around one or two years, can we name even five fundamental shifts, changes of orientation, movements of the heart to get closer to the heart of God? Can we name three of them? Can we name two of them? Can you name one? Can you name one that you've made? Do we spend our money? Do we use our tongues? Do we handle conflict? Do we allocate our time? Do we welcome strangers? Do we go out in search of the, 
of the spiritually lost in the pattern of humility and servanthood and perseverance that Jesus taught and modeled? Or is God primarily useful to us so long as he meets our needs and does not demand too much of us? Are the others here in the family okay so long as they don't challenge our behavior or test our patience or try to get into the pew in front of us when we got there first? Do our hearts beat after God? His heart. Or is that a smokescreen? And a different kind of flame burns within. I believe that many of us style ourselves on the outside as Christians. And I'm speaking to myself here just alongside of you. Many of us style ourselves on the outside as Christians, but on the inside where God looks, we are mainly consumers still. We're mainly consumers still. We're burning our way along through life. And like Toby or the younger son in this parable, we may visit the father's home looking for what else he might dish out to us, but in our our hearts, we're citizens of a distant country, distant from the kingdom of God and its ways. We don't know how long had it been that way for the younger son in Christ's parable. We do know, however, that there came a day when he had burned through everything. He had tried that way of life. He burned everything he had, all of the bridges and resources he had. He had thought he was going to find his heart's desire by obeying the law of his own will, his own selfish will. But, be, but because God was, his God was fundamentally his appetites, what I want, what I need, what I desire, now all he had left was this heartburn. He'd eaten too much of himself and had given him heartburn. Friends had been plentiful when he was in the high-consuming season of life. But now he found out, quite to his surprise, I imagine, that he was hungry and desperate and alone. And then, then the Bible says, he came to his senses. He came to his senses. Gosh, he thinks, you know, the very servants in my father's house have it better than this. You know, there were kids of the house, and then there were servants, and then there were the hired independent contractors. The servants have it better than this. I'm going to set out and go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, the son says to himself, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men, the lowest. So he got up, and he went to his father, the Bible says. Now, switch gears with me for a minute and just imagine this. Let's just imagine for a moment that Toby's father had survived the attack. Suppose they'd been able to get him to Scripps Memorial Hospital in La Jolla fast enough, and the pulmonologists and the neurologists and the others had been around him, and they'd been able miraculously to save his life. 
and to heal him up and to restore him in some way from that terrible assault on his head and more importantly, the assault on his heart. Just imagine that had happened. And then a couple of years later, Toby comes sauntering up the driveway saying, Would you let me back into the household? Can you imagine the response of the father? On a far vaster scale, I struggle myself to imagine what the heavenly father would do if you and I came to our senses about how selfish we have been and still are and really tried to come home. After I have so violently rejected his heart and run from his company so many more times than you know, after I have so poorly soaked up his character in spite of being in his house for how many years now? And still so little of his character soaking into me after I've so badly embarrassed the family name through my hypocrisies and my wanness and the weakness of my convictions and faith. After I've so weakly cared for the extension of his estate in this world or really considered the needs of my brothers in a significant way. How would the father respond to me, maybe to you, if we suddenly came up trudging up the driveway towards home? We don't have to imagine. No guesswork required. Because Jesus tells us, right here in this parable, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and pulled out the shotgun. Call the cops. No. No. It goes on and says, and he was filled with tremendous ambivalence. Right? I know I'm supposed to take my son back because I'm, I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'm supposed to do that kind of thing. But I, I hate this son of a, what, what, he, did after, what he did to me. No. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with splenchnizomai, the Greek. Compassion. Deep, visceral compassion for the child. And he ran to his son. He closed the distance as fast as he possibly could. And he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the child blurts out this deep and humble confession, this rehearsed speech. He does not expect to be treated as anything but the lowest of the low in the father's house. If he can even get back in, but before he can finish his speech, his dad interrupts him. No such thing, he says. You're my kid. 
I want the best for you. I want the best for you. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now has been found. And the Bible goes on and says, and so they began to celebrate. Implication being it was a long, big, wonderful, glorious, over-the-top party. My friends, it all boils down to this, this gospel of ours. We are united with brothers and sisters worldwide in a glorious communion. We find ourselves by the poolside again in the presence of a father against whose glory and honor and kingdom, if we're honest, our hearts have burned against with selfishness, even if we are still so sin-blinded that we think ourselves pretty good. There is every just reason, and if you don't feel this in your heart, you just have to believe the Bible on this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, the Bible says. There's every reason to fear now the Father's righteous fury. And yet, and yet, when he stoops down as he does, and he picks up the terracotta planter, and he raises it up, it is not to smash our heads with it. It is rather to dip it down into the pool of his everlasting grace, stained with the blood of his love, and to ladle out to us the grace we need to quench the fire. Beloved, if, if that isn't enough, to somehow douse the flame kicked up by the lies, to fill our hearts with the truth that he seeks to replace the lies with in our hearts, if this is not enough to make us desire to have a heart more like dad's, then what is? Please pray with me. Our gracious God, as we prepare to come again today to the table of your grace, or maybe, maybe for the first time, help us to see ourselves as you see us. To see both, Lord God, the depths of our selfishness and sin, or maybe a little deeper than we saw it when we came in the doors. And to see also the glory of that love and life for which we have been made so visible in the face of Jesus. And grant us the ability, Lord God, to receive in the depths of our heart today that grace you pour out to us through your body and blood to fill us with life anew. 
people. We pray in the name of Jesus. And God's people said,